guys, this is Vanessa, and thank you so much for listening to the first episode of Take a Walk Podcast. I'm mostly recording this for two reasons. One, <coughs> sorry, I had a burp. One, uh, forgive me for the weird audio in episode one. That's an issue that's all solved now. And two, I really want Take a Walk to be a fan-made experience. It's to encourage you to go out and explore your neighborhoods. So if you guys have any suggestions for locations you want me to check out or any comics or people in the area you know that you want to guest on this, send me an email. And also, the first two episodes are recorded in different formats for a reason. I need you guys to help me pick which is the best format. So episode one, we did a tour and then we conducted the interview afterwards, as you will listen soon. And episode two, we walked and talked as we recorded, so they sound pretty significantly different. So I need you guys to bug me on Twitter, Facebook, email. Tell me what you're looking for. Tell me which version you like better because everything on Unpops wouldn't exist without you guys. So I trust y'all. Please don't suggest fastball at Chet's. I will slit my wrists. I love you. Okay, bye. Welcome to Take a Walk, a podcast that happens outside with your host, Vanessa Gritton. So, you're listening to Take a Walk Podcast. I'm your host, Vanessa Gritton, and we're here with the host for Goods from the Woods, Rivers Langley. Hi, everybody. How are you? And uh, so far, we're, we just took a t- uh, tour at Clifton's, and this is one of those places in Los Angeles that my brain can't wrap around being real. Yeah, yeah. Starting with that neon and ending with that tiki bar, I haven't fully processed all of it yet. Right, yeah. Oh, my God. I... How is this still here? So this place uh, was actually renovated uh, starting in 2013, and they spent almost three years renovating this place. Uh, It actually closed. uh, It used to be called Brookdale Cafeteria, Mm. which is what it was called after. uh, When it was first opened in 1935, this was called Clifton's Brookdale, and then it became Brookdale, and then uh, it closed down in 2013. They spent almost three years renovating the place. It reopened in 2015 and uh, just under the name Clifton's, uh, which was the original name of the place. Why did you change to Brookdale? uh, Because this place, all right, so this was actually part of a chain uh, of restaurants that were in LA. There was about seven of them, uh, and they all had different names. There was Clifton's, this was, the building we're in now was opened in 1935, uh, and it's called Clifton's Brookdale. Uh, and there was another restaurant uh, over on Olive Street. It was 618 Olive Street, which is currently a parking lot. Yeah. Um, but uh, over on Olive Street was the first Clifton's Cafeteria, and mm-hmm. that one was called Clifton's Pacific Seas. Oh, that's what it says on my glass. Exactly. So at the so in a nod to the original restaurant, when they reopened this place, mm-hmm. they turned the uh, the back room of the of the top floor into a um, into a tiki bar. To be a representation of the original Clifton's, which opened in 1931. Ah, that black, that back room made me short circuit twice. Yeah. First, when you just pushed a mirror. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a hidden door. I love anything with a hidden door. That's why I enjoy the Magic Castle still, even oh, though yeah. everybody wants me to hate it. I love that place yeah. just for the sake of hidden doors. And it's such a perfect 1950s 
tiki bar that I almost hate everyone in there for being casual because I want them to all have the same how is this real meltdown that Speechless I'm having. Speechless respect. <laughs> awestruck uh, I silence. I want them to be as awestruck and touch every figurehead in the room and wonder where it came. It, it's amazing. It's beautiful. So that's kind of a nod to the original cafeteria. This, this particular building, uh, when it opened, so Brookdale is the name of a lodge uh, up near uh, Yosemite National Park. Mm-hmm. And uh, Clifford Clinton, uh, who was the guy who opened the place, uh, was actually from Berkeley. And he spent summers uh, traveling the world with his parents, who were Christian missionaries, and they also owned restaurants up in Bay Area. Mm-hmm. So they paid for their world travels. They were very successful. But they paid for their traveling and their mission work mm-hmm. through the restaurants. So he grew up traveling the world and also working in restaurants. Uh, and so... The Brookdale idea was, I want to build a sort of a representation of the Redwoods and Yosemite. So this is supposed oh, to be... Oh, it's immediately apparent. So this is themed as Northern California, uh, essentially. Yeah. The, the little nook that we're sitting in is uh, made out of re- uh, Redwood. Uh, yeah, we've got the... the... You've got, uh, yeah, you, there's a um, lit up, uh, backlit uh, picture of Yosemite Falls. Uh, and uh, the room we're in is actually, we're, we're sitting at a table that's made out of the stump of a redwood tree. Uh, so it's it's supposed to be the redwoods. Uh, but Clifford Clinton is maybe my favorite person in L.A. history. Uh, he uh, was born in 1900 uh, in Berkeley. And like I said, worked, worked in his dad's restaurants growing up. And uh, basically... Uh, Spent, spent his childhood traveling the world and being deeply instilled with the, you know, Christian values of his parents. And yeah. as soon as, you know, as soon as you hear me say that, people will immediately be like, oh, this ends bad. But no, he's like the good kind, where it's like he's like he's a... one of the good ones. He's like the by-the-book, you know, to the point of being, a, later in this story, uh, being accused of being a uh, Stalinist and a socialist. Uh, mm-hmm. because, so I like him. Yeah, you know, he's the best. Uh, so... Um, but uh, anyway, when he uh, he moved down here uh, because he kind of wanted to get away from the Bay, he had a bit of a, a kind of a harsh relationship with his dad because his dad promoted him to uh, general managing one of the restaurants uh, back in the late 1920s. And it was at this point that he started developing uh, what he, uh, let's see, what was the name of it? Let's see. Oh, the uh, his manual of operations is what it was called. And it was this three binder uh book essentially of how to run a restaurant according to the gospels of jesus now i already love them just for the sake of binders i love anybody that can't function without binders yeah and so this manual of operation he showed it to his dad was like dad this is this is how jesus would want us to run a restaurant and he gave it to his dad and his dad fired him uh (laughs) because he's like this you are an idiot this will ruin a company yes i'm a christian but this is insanity so he fired him, and so he took his wife and his three kids and trucked it down to L.A. in 1931 mm-hmm. and opened the first Clifton's Cafeteria, Clifton's South Seas, uh, over on Olive Street, like I mentioned. And his idea for theming the place was essentially, like, as a cafeteria, we're going to be mostly serving poor people. And poor people don't get the opportunity to go to Polynesia like I did when I was yeah. a kid. So the idea was, like, oh, we'll show people other cultures. We'll show people, you know, what how, how other people live around the world. So the idea for all of his cafeterias were kind of, like, basically show, you know, show people... Uh, a little piece of somewhere else. A little piece of somewhere else that could kind of take them out of the reality. Because you have to think, 1931, it's the Great Depression. Yeah. So when I say there's poor people, they're really poor people. 
and um, they actually called Clifton's cafeteria. So he adopted his manual of operations, and uh, his uh, slogan for this place was "Dine free unless delighted." So you could come in here. He's a man after my own heart. He's amazing. You could come in here and you could pay whatever you wanted for a meal. That we was pay what you want, and not He's only the original was it, band camp. It, totally. And what's crazy is that you know you might think like, oh, is that this was some kind of like low key kind of no? He had it in huge neon lights in the front of the original Clifton's, a giant red neon sign that said "Pay what you want," and uh, he, they started calling this place the cafeteria of the Golden Rule. Uh, so, but you have to think of the time period: 1931, yeah. the first one opens; 1930, uh, uh, a couple years later, this one opens, uh, and. You know, this is the beginning of the Dust Bowl in Oklahoma and the Great Depression, the stock market crash. So there are hungry, starving people everywhere. And in addition to being, uh, you know, very, very Christ-like in his uh, way of serving food, uh, he was also a radical integrationist. So L.A., a lot of people don't know, had essentially the same Jim Crow kind of laws as the South. It was very, very segregated. And, you know, even today, if you look at demographic maps of L.A., it was a lot less harsh than the South, but there was definitely red lines, you know. And a lot of people in Los Angeles tend to forget that existed. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. I mean, especially where we are now, they kind of, there's still echoes of it existing. Yeah, oh, it was was harsh back then. I actually have, uh, so one of the, (laughs) so he was, uh, because he was so religious, it was Mm -hmm. like, you know, you know, every man is, is equal, stuff like that. Uh, so he refused to segregate this restaurant. Mm. And as you can imagine, um, because nothing ever changes, the police and the city hall hated fucking that. hated him. <laughs> so, because not only is he like encouraging vagrancy, which is what they called, you know, people who didn't have a fucking job, mm. they also were enforcing racial segregation as well. So this guy was just basically spitting directly in the face of that and giving away free meals. And uh, in addition to that, if you go outside onto mm. out onto Broadway here, uh, you'll see they've, they've redone the facade the way it would have looked in the 30s, but they've left the sign above the sign, and that says Clifton's Restaurant School. He would offer business classes to people. No way! Would, so yeah, this place uh, operated for years as his business school. So he would, for almost, you know, for basically no money, he would teach you how to get a loan from the bank, how to start a restaurant, the best way to like serve people, stuff like that, and would, you know, essentially encourage, uh, you know, people who are below the poverty line to, to bring themselves up and would help them out actively. That's incredible. This place, uh, the, everything that was done in this restaurant was he had uh, two. Uh, he had the management side and the employee side, and they each had a representative, and they voted, and he was the third tie-breaking vote. So, everything here was democratized. He was the first restaurant in LA to offer full healthcare benefits for all of his employees. Uh-huh. And the craziest thing about it is that he was wildly successful. Like his, you know, his whole—he remind—I don't know—his whole life essentially was just like "fuck you, dad." Like his dad fired him for his crazy ideas. He's but like, he's the best. He, fuck you, dad. It's not. It's, I didn't start a band with a great name, but a horrible sound. He changed. Yeah, yeah. He changed lives. That he is. He's a man out of time. Like yeah. you read about him, and you're like, who is this magnificent dude living in like one of the most fucked up, hateful time periods ever? You know what I mean? Yeah. He um, and he had uh, this newsletter that came out every week here called Food for Thought. 
and he had a suggestions box downstairs mm-hmm. where people were encouraged to write down any problems they have at the restaurant. They would stuff them in the box, mm-hmm. and then in the newsletter, he would type out the problem. He would type out the suggestions or the complaints, and then would respond to them either apologizing or backing up with scripture whatever the complaint was. And I have this one written down from 1944 because it's awful, uh, <laughs> but his response is great. It says uh, this was a. a complaint that he got. I have always liked Clifton's, but yesterday two Negroes sat at my table and the food began to taste like sawdust. Oh my god. Which is insane. Uh, Insane and honestly not far off from emails we could probably still get today. Oh, just look at Twitter. I'm sure someone's complaining that black people made their food taste like sawdust on Twitter right now. They have a Peppy the Frog and a MAGA hashtag. Yeah. I work in the complaints department for commercials for Hulu, so (laughs) I still still get them. Hmm. So you can... A, you can sort of appreciate what a, a quixotic effort it is to try to make people happy. Oh, yeah. Um, and so he says, his response to this was, if colored skin is a passport to the death of our liberties, then it is also a passport to Clifton's cafeteria. <laughs> so that was his, like, fuck you. He was like, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna go against the Constitution oh, or my own convictions. Yeah. Oh, my God. But he was nice so about it. Yeah. You know? Uh uh, and also, he had this. He was wildly successful. He had a huge mansion in mm. Los Feliz, and all of his employees were invited to swim in his pool whenever they wanted to. So he would have like big company parties and shit like that. And uh, like I said, the local. He does sound really out of place. It's crazy. There's something about it that just it feels like he made a wish to go back to a time and fix everything. And just be great. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, he was uh, he was great. He owned a lot of these restaurants and. Um, what was I gonna say? Oh, so I kind of want to like set up the time period a little bit for what's coming next. Yeah. So uh, basically, throughout the 1920s, like every aspect of City Hall was controlled and funded by the money that the police made stealing from vice operations, essentially. Yeah. So I have a statistic. This is a statistic that Clifford Clinton actually gathered himself. Uh, when he became a grand jurist, he discovered that uh, in nineteen in the mid nineteen thirties there were eighteen hundred bookies, six hundred brothels, and three hundred gambling houses throughout the city of Los Angeles, <laughs> and every single one of them was paying protection racket to the cops. Holy so shit. the cops would charge if you wanted to open a business in L.A. Yeah. The LAPD would charge you a down payment of five thousand dollars, and then a monthly protection fee. Of $500, which is the mob. That's what the mob does. Yeah, exactly. So the trade-off was the mob was like, okay, we can continue our operations of running booze mm-hmm. and, and brothels and gambling houses if we pay off the cops. And the cops were running a protection racket. And what was crazy is that the average beat cop in the 1930s was making about $200 a month. And there was a charge. You had to pay in order to be promoted mm-hmm. if you were a police officer. So they're getting $200 a month, and you have to pay 500 to be promoted. Meanwhile, the people on the vice squad, which are the people shutting, you know, taking money from the mob, yeah. taking money from business owners, people on the vice squad were making about $4,000 a year. Holy shit. And so therefore, everyone who could pay to be promoted was corrupt. Because yeah. the people below the line, pipeline if you were a good cop, you f- could not afford to move up. If you were a dirty cop, you could go as high as you wanted to. So the entire police force... The system was basically put in place for it. Yeah, it's fucking crazy. Oh my god. So the entire police force is uh, is overseen by this guy named James Davis, mm. who 
for years was it, it still, you know, in some circles is regarded as like this legendary kind of police chief in mm. LA. And uh, he was very, very anti-union mm. uh, in which he saw as a form of communism. And uh, you can sort of see where there's about to be a butting of heads yeah. uh, <laughs> with uh, Mr. Clinton. Uh, but he was, he actually formed what he called the Red Squad. And the Red Squad was the anti-communist squad, and they would just spy on pretty much everybody. I don't think there's any scarier name you can give for your than Red Squad. He also had one called the Intelligence Squad. We'll talk about that one in a minute. Both uh, of them sound like Johnny Quest villains. Oh, yeah. So, the Red Squad was... Uh, and here's the really fucking crazy part. Mm. The Chandler family, which owns the LA Times, yeah. were also wildly anti-union. So when you go back to this time period, if you're reading stories about corruption in L.A., you have to get them from the San Francisco Chronicle or from the San Diego Times because the L.A. Times was in the pocket of big business and their whole thing was they wanted to shut down unions. So even today, the L.A. Times is known as being kind of the most conservative mainstream paper. Yeah. Uh, that tradition came from the fact that they were in bed with big business. And For they were very anti Yeah, oh yeah. And they were very anti-union. Uh, so James Davis uh, and the mayor, whose uh, name was Frank Shaw, Frank Shaw is widely regarded as the most corrupt mayor in the history of America. Uh, his brother uh, ran that protection racket that we talked about in the LAPD. His mm. brother was the guy running all of that stuff. Uh, when the whole sandcastle comes crumbling down, mm. his brother was charged with 63 counts of corruption. Uh, yes. So, uh, so all that's happening. Uh, and it is, you know, it's it's a it's a fucking disaster. Meanwhile, Clifford Clinton's over here offering. Uh, in this particular building, he started the one cent meal. Uh, when this place opened in 1935, he gave out over 10,000 free meals in the first nine, like the first month this place was open, or first three months this place was open. He gave out like so many free meals and was making money hand over fist because. At the same time period where all of this stuff is happening, this is one of the, the you know, great awakenings, what they call it. This is yeah. the beginning of the career of Billy Graham and uh, and all of the kind of evangelicals who a lot of people don't associate L.A. with that, but yeah. that's where all the radio stuff was. So out oh, west, yeah, L.A. is the heart of televangelism. Oh, As yeah. I was telling you before, the godmother of televangelism was born, bred, and started in Los Angeles. Right, like the right. Angeles Temple... Exists as a temp like a testament to the earliest televangelists learning what they can do with the populace. Yeah, it is. Uh, let's see, what was the other? Oh, uh, I gotta get her name, but definitely look up the Angelus Temple and the woman behind it because oh boy, is her life a soap opera. I gotta, yeah, I, in, anybody who can like fake their own death is, oh, yeah. is awesome. Fake her own death, and she faked her own death for six months and ran off with a parishioner, and it's one of those. So deeply Los Angeles stories. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's, it's, crazy. it's really true crime and television, and she ended up making her money off the radio. And she's basically why Mari is popular now because it was after she was discovered that they were just they they fed off of that like tabloid the drama, scandal, the yeah, scandal of it. Yeah. Um, so uh, basically, while all this stuff is happening, yeah. uh, you know, you've got. Clifford Clinton, who's running this insane, insanely successful operation, and, and also we have the school going. 
So uh, at, in 1935, the L.A. County Supervisor is this guy named John Anson Ford, uh, and the Ford Amphitheater is named for him, actually, over in Coolinga oh. Pass. Um, he was the county supervisor, and uh, he realized that they were losing an incredible amount of money uh, in the food service of the hospitals, of L.A. Mm-hmm. County hospitals. And so he was like, kind of took a look around and was like, oh, th- this guy, this guy knows how to run a run a restaurant. Yeah, he's prob- making money. And- he'd probably be great at, you know, cutting down on waste and stuff like that for the hospitals. So he uh, basically asks uh, Clifford Clinton to come on board and try to investigate, you know, all of the, all the hospitals and stuff like that and try to figure out where there's a bunch of corruption and stuff like that. And uh, so... <laughs> Clifford's final report uh, said that waste and favoritism were costing the county about $120,000 a year. Oh, that's 30s money! <laughs> it's so crazy. Uh, because all of the people who were in government at that time mm-hmm. were all paid into, because the whole goddamn system is dirty, if you want to be the guy who runs the hospital food, you just pay the mayor and he'll hire you. There was no, like experience-based appointments. There was no merit-based appointments. It was literally, if you were willing to bribe the government, you could have whatever job you wanted. So everyone is Betsy DeVos. Everyone is corrupt. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This this, this is gonna, yeah, this sounds awful and, and coming coming soon. Uh, <laughs> you know? Where's our Clifton? <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Um, so, uh, yeah, so he finds all this waste and stuff like that. And, uh, Clifford Clinton finds out that he loves this job, like just exposing corruption and, uh, you know, getting dirty people off the rolls and cleaning up the town. He has a real knack for it. He has a knack for running restaurants, but the thing he loves more than that is just fucking with corrupt people. And at this point, uh, I realized, like, reading about him, he is... Have you seen The Wire? No. So... Anybody out there listening, Clifford Clinton is essentially McNulty from The Wire. Like, the main character of The Wire is this guy, is the Detective McNulty, Uh who pisses off absolutely everybody on the force because he insists on playing by the rules. Like, to the point where it's, like, aggressive and, like, he knows people are going to be mad at him if he plays by the rules, but he does it anyway just to fuck with them. he's food service Batman. He's food service Batman. He's he's Chef Batman. (laughs) It's the best. Oh and my god, I can't believe this is real! It's so crazy. So, uh, so uh, John Ford, John Anson Ford, mm. uh, appoints him uh, to be a grand jurist uh, in 1937. And the grand jurist, which is still, I found out, like a job you can get today. Mm. It's where, uh, where the L.A. Uh, Superior Court will appoint citizens mm. to essentially serve as like citizen panels on government waste and yeah. stuff like that. And it's still a job you can, you can get... Like, cause I was, uh, I was trying to pay, uh, or I was trying to do uh, jury duty stuff and I went on the website and there was a thing like, Hey, would you like to become a grand jurist? And I was like, Oh, like Clifford Clinton. <laughs> you know? Absolutely. And I was like, I guess. Um, but they had lots of leeway into who they could investigate. And so he decides his next target is going to be the LAPD. Uh, I love this man. I love this man so, so much. So he's like, well, I fixed the hospitals. Let's go after the cops. Uh, and it's at that point that uh, Clifford's uh, restaurants, uh, everybody starts magically complaining of food poisoning. Uh-huh. And the health inspectors start showing up every single day to every restaurant, and they just start fucking with him, basically. He's like, he's, he's rattled the cages, and they're like, fuck you, dude. No, and you're poking the mayor. So they're like, 
you know, paying people to, to say that they got sick in these restaurants and stuff yeah. like that. They're sending health inspectors there to try to fuck him. But because he was fucked, you know, because he was, uh, he had such, like, I think anger towards his dad for, you know, firing him over his thing. How is he, he not a pop punk song? Right? <laughs> he, because he's got all this, like, kind of rage still against his dad. Mm. You just don't fuck with this guy because he's yeah. relentless, you know? He's more relentless than the cops, and he's a saint, too, on top of that. So you really can't mess with him. Uh, so I gotta get these uh, these dates right. So he hires this guy, Henry Ray- uh, Harry Raymond, who was his investigator. Harry Raymond uh, goes after everybody, and that's when they discovered the 1,800... 1800- uh, 1,800 bookies, 600 brothels, uh, 300 gambling houses, um, and uh, so it was at that point that this the LA Times called him uh, public enemy number one, the guy trying to clean up Why is corruption, there no deal about this? calls this guy public enemy number one, uh, and the cafeteria kid, uh, and... In uh, October 28th, 1937, a bomb exploded in the basement of Clifton's house in Los Feliz. Uh, Fortunately, his, him and all of his wife and kids and stuff were all on the other side of the house, so nobody was hurt. Uh, and there's, here's the best part. Um, the, there, were, there was a witness who saw a car leaving the site of the bombing, yeah. took down the license plate number, reported it, and it came back as a car belonging to the intelligence squad. Oh my god! That's how little the cops gave a fuck about how corrupt they were. They were like, we hate this guy, let's go blow him up, what car should we take? Yeah, just take one of ours. Just take a cop car. The most identifiable car. Oh my Someone god. saw a, essentially a cop car leaving the scene of a bombing and was like, oh that's weird, you know? Uh, so he wasn't hurt, uh, and then his lead investigator uh, was uh, that was in October of 37 January of 38 uh, Harry Raymond, the guy I mentioned, his mm. investigator uh, he got in his car started it and the car exploded uh, except that he lived through it he had like that was going to be my next question he had like hundreds of lacerations but he fucking lived uh, through this explosion and at that point the DA who was also corrupt was forced to open an investigation because there had been two random explosions in Los Feliz so if he didn't it would be super obvious so he essentially was forced to open up an investigation that he knew would bring him down Scorsese's missing out on so much by not doing this it's so fucking nuts dude oh my god so the DA because they were so clumsy and so bad at their job the DA was like fuck now I have to, now I have to myself. bring myself down, essentially. Uh, so uh, the uh, police captain, Kennett, uh, uh, went on trial for the bombing, uh, and he was convicted. Uh, and then at that point, Clifford Clinton goes after the mayor. Uh, so uh, He's my hero now. So uh, he finds a, a law where <laughs> if you get a certain amount of signatures, the mayor can be recalled during the next election. So Clifford Clinton offered free meals... Uh, if you signed a petition, and he got over 120,000 signatures before election day, got it on the ballot, and uh, the mayor was recalled in a landslide. Uh, the the guy, wage of the man's heart is through the stomachs of the people. It's crazy. Oh and uh, the guy who won the mayor position, his name was uh, Judge Fletcher Bowron. Uh, he won, and at that point, uh, he fired James Davis, the police chief. Uh, and he uh, got Joe Shaw, who was the brother of Frank Shaw, 
convicted of 63 counts of corruption. Uh, and uh, at that point, the mafia, uh, once the corrupt, the, tri- the corrupt triangle, which was the cops, the DA, and the city hall, was broken, that is when uh, a town out in the desert called Las Vegas uh, suddenly became very interesting to the mob because their umbrella here was gone. So, destroyed by a restaurateur. Destroyed by a restaurateur. So in the late 1940s, the mob fled LA, left the Sunset Strip, fled out to Vegas. Oh my god, that makes so much sense. This is like the coolest prequels. <laughs> it's so crazy. Uh, and uh, Clifford Clinton founded a, uh, an organization called Meals for Millions, uh, and he died in 1969. Uh, and uh, yeah, his yeah. So he's he's like the uh, he's Chef Batman Jesus. He's Chef Jesus Batman. <laughs> He's the vigilante we needed. He's still need. Hell. Still need. Still I, need. <laughs> I'd try and find a way to bring him back if I could. Holy shit. So I have a... I a, walked past this place a dozen times and I would have never thought... That it's got the craziest story of all time oh, yeah. attached to it. I thought Zankow Chicken was insane with the owner murder. Oh, with the, with the murder? <laughs> so I have a little addendum to the story mm. that... Uh, you know, some some people would think kind of tarnishes the guy's reputation. I think makes him even fucking cooler. Uh, is that he went to a uh, Clifford Clinton went to a uh, a massage place one day mm. with a happy ending, and nice. just kind of fell in love with the massage girl. Mm. Uh, took her as a mistress, and his wife was uh, probably not cool with it. But they went on vacations together. And stuff like that. All three of like them? a sister sister wife style. Uh, they all went on vacations together. He would like. He made it work. <laughs> he made it work. He would like take turns in different beds. She moved into the house, and uh, his mistress. Uh, he he did make her convert to Christianity. <laughs> oh my god! Which is, what powers of persuasion does this man have? It's crazy. Uh, and then that uh, doesn't tarnish it for me. If anything, if he could just. The fact that he made it work and created a family about him and his mistress. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, my God. And his mistress uh, was very interested in creating uh, what at the time was called marital aids, mm. uh, which were like, uh, you know, basically scented lotions to make you horny. That was oh, the yeah. idea. Uh, and so he provided the seed money uh, for a marital aid company that produced uh, two products. One was called Joy Gel, and the other one was called Emotion Lotion. <laughs> Both things I called Vaseline growing up. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, but, you know, lilac-flavored KY, from what I gathered. Uh, how, yeah. How did you dive into this originally? So, uh, I got into, I'm a tour guide, so my, my day job is I... Really? Yeah. That I didn't know. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. No, I'm literally a tour guide. Like, I, I love that. I drive people around LA, and I get <laughs> to talk about stuff. Uh, the first time I came in here, uh, I actually was just so like, what is this? And yeah. you just start looking into it, and there's actually a book that uh, Clinton's grandson wrote and put out probably six years ago or something uh, that's very good, that has most of this information in it. And then there's a podcast called The Dollop, and they did they did an episode about the LAPD. Mm-hmm. And this was just a side story in the history of the LAPD, and I was like, this How are you is, not diving into this more? It's like, this is insane, you know? So uh, there's an episode of The Dollop where uh, they, they go through and they say a lot of the same information that I have I've, I have here. And I was just like, this is my... So, you know, you can kind of go through and look into it more. Another thing he invented was a uh, what is essentially 
uh, now would be called like protein powder. Yeah. Because it was a time in which uh, you know all of these uh, bomb shelters were being built during during the forties after yeah, the Russians got the bomb. Yeah, they longevity and bulk and nutrition. Right. So one of the things he invented was this powder that you could you know put in a bowl, add water to, and stir it up, and it would give you all of the nutrients and stuff you needed to survive a, a nuclear war. I guess. So that was one of the things he invented. He was like just a you know. Just a really interesting dude. <laughs> so I knew it was going to be interesting because I found that everything in LA that's ever, ever utterly fascinated me or captivated me has a really cool sidewalk in front of it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's one of those things that I, uh, I think anyone that lives in Los Angeles now, whenever you go home, there's always that person that's like, oh, how can you live in a city? How can you live in a city? Yeah. And it's like, everything I touch is covered in history. Yeah, yeah, hell I yeah. I can spit and hit a yeah. national treasure. Oh, totally. Easily. Yeah, yeah. And this is one of those things that was, for some reason, flew under my radar, and I think it's just because in my head, going to a cafeteria is like going to a buffet alone. Right. Well, and what's cool is, you know, Clinton died in uh, 1969, and then, you know, the cafeteria kind of, like, limped along until 2013, and then it shut down, and the people who reopened this place are the same ones who did the Thirsty Crow and Idle Hour. Really? I love the Thirsty Crow. Yeah, it's those, that, whatever that company is, I forgot the name of, they are the ones who put the money in to rebuild this place, and like I said, they spent three years doing it. And it, I mean, you can see we're sitting in the, we're sitting in a little nook in the back of the place now. It's fucking, it's packed out. There's people eating uh, cafeteria food. The cafeteria is still open. Um, and then at night, it's become like one of the hippest bars in LA. Oh, yeah. So you come here on Friday, Saturday night. It's packed in here. You know, like it's, it, this is kind of, we're, we're recording this at, you know, early evening. So this is kind of the time to come if you're, you know, listening to this and you want to come to LA and uh, visit this place. Kind of come right when the sun's going down because there'll be there'll be people here, but you can really roam and explore because the the place, like I said, is themed. It's supposed to be Northern California, so there's like stuffed buffalo. There's like little foxes and little foxholes. There is a uh, there's a castle uh, that overlooks the main dining area that has like a little tiny diorama inside of the Redwood Forest. Oh yeah, I saw that thing. Yeah, we can walk in there. It's like a little it's like a little teeny tiny room where hipsters go to make out now, I guess. But uh, <laughs> so. So, let's say we do have somebody using this as a guided tour. What are the first four things that they have to go and check out while they're here? Oh, well, the one thing I didn't mention on here that I told you about, mm. uh, right when you walk in, you're going to want to go downstairs to the bathrooms. Mm. Uh, so, when you go immediately downstairs, there's a small landing, and there's the men's and women's rooms, and then there's an old phone booth, like a wooden phone booth, which is cool. Uh, and then you, you'll notice on the wall, there's a very old neon... Uh, light bulb, essentially. Which blew my mind. And it's very old and very cool. And what it is is, it was part of the original restaurant. And uh, at some point, that wall was just bricked over because they renovated the place, probably sometime in the you know sixties or seventies. Yeah. Bricked over that, and they just left the light on. They're like, oh well, that'll burn out. And then they just forgot about it. So. Cut to night, you know. Cut to 2014 or whenever they come down to renovate that downstairs area and do yeah. the, redo the bathrooms. They take a hammer to the wall, and all of a sudden a light bursts out, like the, you know, like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction, 
And they're like, what the fuck? Something that looks so holy and important. Yeah, and they break down the wall, and this light bulb is still glowing, and they believe that it's the <laughs> longest burning neon light in history. That's insane. And it's wired directly into the city's power grid. And there's a little sign down there that tells you all the history and stuff of it. And one of the things it says is that, in all likelihood, the only time this light was ever turned off is during air raid drills in the 40s. Because as far as, like, mainland cities, uh, you know, Los Angeles is the closest mainland American city to Japan. Yeah. So it was assumed that if the Japanese were to ever bomb mainland America, it would be L.A. So in the 40s, they would do blackout drills like they do they did in London, yeah. where they would turn off the whole power grid of the city. But other than that, that, that light has never been turned off, except the few, probably three or four drills in the 40s. I don't know why there's something so important and holy feeling about it. It almost yeah. feels like an Olympic torch. Yeah, it really it, does. Especially the fact that it's neon. It just feels like... An American, uh, you it know. It feels like our American or our Los Angeles, like, eternal flame. Right, right. Well, it's, you know, considering, you know, considering the family of the man who put the thing up there, it yeah. is kind of like, all right, Cliff, Clifton's still, you know, or uh, Clifford is still alive, I should he say. still burns on in here. Yeah. If I, I feel like I might have actually slipped up and called him Clifton a few times. The, the restaurant, his name was Clifford Clinton, so it's a combination of his first and last name. Also, Clinton Street in Hollywood, which is, uh, you know, full disclosure where I live, uh, just off of Clinton, is named for, name for him. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, so that, that's the first thing you hit. Uh, I mean, really, if you, realistically, if you come here, you're going to want to just walk and explore everything because there's just so much stuff to look at. Um, so when you walk in, go downstairs, check out the neon light. You come back upstairs, and the first thing you'll see is kind of a big open dining room area. Uh, and on the left is sort of a rock terrace that has some tables on it. And then on uh, Sundays, they do a jazz brunch, and they'll have a band playing on top of this waterfall. appeals to everything, I love. Yeah, and there's a waterfall running through the restaurant. I mean, and the swing band upstairs. And then, yeah, and then you get up to the, uh, to the uh, that's the mezzanine, I guess, is, the, is where that is. You get up to the first floor, and it's a big kind of open area, and there's a fireplace inside of a big fake redwood tree that goes up three stories, and there's a ba- there's a banister that wraps around the tree on all three stories, so no matter where you are, you can kind of see it. Uh, you go up to the second floor, and it's a ballroom. It has crown molding. It has stuff like peacocks and cougars and all kinds of crazy shit to see up there, and a bandstand, and that's on Saturday nights. They'll have live swing jazz playing up there. So yeah. there'll be people playing like, you know, Glenn Miller and Django Reinhardt tunes God, and shit I like that. I love some Glenn Miller. And they, they swing dance and... Uh, That's something I have to take my father to because he really loves Glenn Miller. Oh man, you yeah. This is this is uh, parent's <laughs> paradise, you know? Oh, this is both parent and date paradise. <laughs> totally. Like, you can go in either direction. Either way. Yeah, if you live here, do yourself a favor. Bring, bring somebody you think is cool to this. Like, especially... Glenn Miller and the entire swing thing is real cool to me because when my parents first immigrated to this country, uh, they tried to integrate real hard. Yeah, uh, yeah. The only thing is they were like 30, 40 years behind in their oh. integration. So while everybody was maybe focused on what was happening in the times, my parents were just catching up with Glenn Miller yeah. at the same time. So Where did they immigrate from? My dad immigrated from El Salvador and my mom immigrated from Guatemala. Oh, okay, right on. Which is why... Growing up, all of the American references I learned were way were behind. Ancient. <laughs> they were the TV shows I watched were like, I mean, for them, new for my generation <laughs> old. I 
was watching like Happy Days, oh, okay. Company, yeah, like, the Mary yeah. Tyler Moore show because they it was new to them. Right, right. And Glenn Miller was the one my dad started listening to when he comes here, and he's head over heels for that man. Oh man, That's, loves him some Glenn Miller. Yeah, man, is. Is it Glenn Miller? I always get Benny Goodman and Glenn Miller died. Which one died in World War II? I think it's I Glenn Miller. I want to say it's Glenn Miller. Yeah, because he, well, he was the clarinet player, right? Yeah. Glenn, Glenn Miller, somebody said something. He was one of the first people with an integrated band. And somebody said something nasty about his drummer, uh, <laughs> a word I won't repeat. And he beat him with his clarinet. I think that's the one, because I remember my dad telling me the story. Because I recall growing up, my dad's shorter than my mom. Yeah. Uh, I recall them slow dancing in my kitchen with my dad's head on my mom's chest because of uh-huh. how much shorter he is listening to clarinets oh. and <laughs> telling me the story. Yeah. And I think they might have been drunk and I come home with that. <laughs> like hindsight now, uh, I'm realizing that. But it was, it's, it's kind of cool because as a kid, I felt like... Well, everybody else has much cooler shit and they're so far behind and now right. my parents I'm like oh I was in a fun little time capsule for oh that. totally yeah it's such a you get an appreciation for that yeah. kind of thing yeah because I'm you know with, with my dad I grew up watching like Andy Griffith and mm-hmm. uh, you know I Love Lucy and, you know Dick Van Dyke and you, if you go back and watch those three shows in particular that is the you know that is the odyssey the Iliad of, of sitcom writing oh yeah and I Love Lucy was the one that my parents used as an example for me all the time. Because for them, it was A, a Latino American in entertainment. That's that right, yeah, great. of course, yeah. And B, a woman that was able to write her pregnancy belly into her own scripts. Yeah, yeah. And they adored it, but they kind of use it as like your you can do anything story. Right, and right. Even now, they bring up Desi Lu as like an example of just kind of like you're a lady and you're a Latina, just do it. Right, right, man. Yeah, and it was, uh, you know, it's the, it's it's also the first time you heard Spanish being spoken on like yeah, like it was always. It's funny because it's used as this joke that a lot of like you'll know like George Lopez does the, yeah. the thing where he'll say ninety nine percent of things in English, but then when it's time to like yell a bunch, he'll yell something in Spanish. And then everybody kind of laughs. Like, do you, you know my buddy Tushar? Yeah. Uh, Tushar Singh is a he's a comedian. Uh, he's actually from Alabama originally, but his folks are from India. And he went over to India and was telling me that his experience dealing with Indian comedy is because there's so many languages. Like, Hindi is the national language, but that's sort of the default. Most most of the time, people have sort of individual dialects and things like yeah. that. And there's, there's hundreds of them, you know, thousands even. And uh, so people will do comedy in English... But then they'll do elaborate act-outs in Hindi. And he's describing it, and I'm like, oh, that's that's Ricky. Yeah. Ricky's jokes are in English, but then when he's like, time to yell at Lucy, it's a big laugh line to just start, you know, going off on her in Spanish. I was like, oh, oh yeah. that's, you know, that's the oldest, like, comedy trick in the book. And you know? it made the most sense to me as a kid, too, because um, they would speak to me English most of the time because they wanted me to learn. Right. But when it came to I was in trouble, or uh-huh. I want to share sentiment, <laughs> or I'm really sad, it was yeah. Spanish, and I do the opposite. I speak to them uh, in English, like, all the time, uh, and, and I use my native language most of the time, but I use Spanish, and then they use English whenever we really want to drive a point home to each other. Oh, yeah. <laughs> just so it's just kind of like, I'm using your native tongue to make you know I'm real mad. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's awesome. They would love this place, though. This is... 
Yeah, this it definitely. Is, this is parents heaven. I'm telling you. And then yeah, if you come on a Saturday, dudes, if you're listening, you got to dress up nice. You can't have sneakers. I found that out. I came in with like, you know, a fairly new pair of sneakers, and they were like, "You're not getting upstairs with this." It's I. I was like, oh. it's the same thing in the Magic Castle. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. matter how nice your sneakers are; they don't give a shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's why you got to come here early in the evening because then yeah. they don't care. But yeah, uh, and then the top, the Tiki Bar in the South Sea is uh, that one is like when it gets crowded in here, there'll be a two-hour wait to get up to the top floor. So. This is actually perfect because I couldn't figure out where to take them when they were in town, and now I know. No, yeah, this is the spot, man. This is really the spot. So, uh, and it's got a, it's got a hilarious story about Chef Jesus Batman, so attached to it. And there's our episode title, Chef Jesus. <laughs> Chef Batman. Jesus Batman. That's what he was, <laughs> Clifford Clinton, man. Well, my piggy little heart is calling to me for that cafeteria. Oh, yeah. Uh, is there anything that you want to... Um, I don't have an exact date as to when this is going to be out because I want to do some oh, okay. and stuff. But is there anything you want to plug where people can find you? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm on Twitter and Instagram. It's just my name, at Rivers Langley, and you can listen to my podcast. It's called The Goods from the Woods. It comes out every Tuesday, and uh, you can find us on Twitter, at The Goods Pod. Fantastic, and thank you so much for being here. Please, thank for you, the Vanessa. love of God, check out Clifton Cafeteria when you're in Los Angeles. It's, I can't believe it's real. Yeah. And you've been listening to Take a Walk Podcast. Go out there and explore.